0: Hey guys, welcome to the studio. I got a heck of a story for you today. This is the guy Andrew D. Donato. Drew was a member uh, or associate of the Nicky Carrazo crew and the Gambino family for a long time, and he has some stories. and uh, And I'm going to tell you something. Early on, there's the best story I ever heard about a car chase that he had. But wait, keep listening. About 15 minutes in, about the time that he and a buddy his stole a car belonging to the son-in-law, Paul Castellano. And in that car, it was a nice Mercedes. The guy was, I won't tell you the story. You got to listen to this story. When they got home, they found stuff in that car that Paul Castellano wanted back. And his capo, Nicky Carrazzo, was on the phone before he could even really get in and and get back in and look at the car. He knew there was some stuff in the car. He knew there was a bag in the car. And Nicky Carrazo said, you know, hey, Just, you got to return that. You got to return that. And so, you know, the story of of what he found and his returning the car and what happened after that is, it's. I tell you, this is one you guys got to share with your friends. You got to share this to everybody. This guy, and he's a heck of a storyteller, too. So, so settle back and listen to this interview with Andrew D. Donato.
1: A friend of mine, Richie, had a Mercedes Benz that, you know, an SL that he was looking to put together. We found one in color. we took it We took it out of a uh, a shopping center. We brought it to the location. We were chopping the car. We couldn't cut it the way we usually do, where we could make a Pepsi can out of it. We had to actually drive the shell out at night, and we had to get it out because a friend of mine we were using his family's garage at the time at this one location. What happened was we had this signal set up that we were going to go out about two in the morning. A friend of mine was standing on a corner with a flashlight. I'm inside the garage, and I'm crimping the, I'm crimping all the oil lines so that the oil lines don't squirt and, you know, leave a trail back to the garage where we chopped the car. And then my friend comes up to me and says, the bottom line that you didn't want to hear in your whole wildest dreams, he tells me, listen, Drew, I need that steering wheel. I'm like, I can't give you this steering wheel. I said, I got to drive this car out. He goes, listen, it's a wood wheel. It's a knotty wheel. He goes, it's going to cost about 500 if I got to buy it in the store. I said, all right. I take this, the steering wheel off the car, and I put a vice grip on <laughs> now the car's got no seats in it, just a shell, engine, there's no trunk deck, there's no hood, there's no doors, there's no nuts. So a friend of mine is standing outside with a flashlight, he gives me the all-go signal that it's safe to come out of the, the driveway. I come out of the driveway with the car, I hit the I hit the top of the street, I make a left, I'm at the corner, I'm waiting for the other signal to let me know. At of the corner of my eye, I see a, I see an undercover cop on the corner, all of a sudden I see, excuse my language, Gary, <laughs> I see the lights go on. I hit the gas and I'm taking it off down the street. I must be going about a buck ten. I'm flying. All I hear is the guy behind me with the with a siren. Whoop, 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 whoop. Pull it over! Pull it over! I'm flying. I'm sitting on a milk crate. I got this. I got this car and I'm trying to steal. I'm trying to steal this car with the vice grips. I'm flying. I'm going through. And if anybody knows the Canarsie area where I grew up, I'm going through. I'm on 85th Street, 84th Street, 83rd Street. I'm blowing red lights, dead red. Traffic screeching. Now it's like 1.32 o'clock in the morning. So you never know what you're going to do. Now I'm coming down Ralph Avenue. I'm going to cross Ralph and Flatland, uh, Ralph and Glenwood. I'm crossing Ralph and Glenwood. And if anybody knows Brooklyn, they know Ralph Avenue is one of the busiest intersections in, the sh- in, in, in Brooklyn. I'm flying. And all I hear is the cop car behind me. Er, he hits the brakes. I go through. I get about two blocks, and I knew I had him. By this time, the oil line shoot out on the car. I get about two more blocks. I turn down the street. I jump out of the car. I run down. And now there's a blue and white coming up the block because I see the smoke from the vehicle. So I stand behind a pole, and I'm watching them fly to the vehicle. The vehicle's on fire now. It's, 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 it's smoking like crazy. I run to the corner. A friend of mine picks me up on the corner. I jump in. I jump in the back seat. I lay down, and we drive away. And I kept on saying to myself, if they catch me, they're going to beat the shit out of me. <laughs> I got lucky because I should have been murdered that night because I'm going through these red lights like, like I had a license to do so. And the traffic is screeching, and I'm, I'm going, I'm, a, I'm about a buck, 10, a buck, 15, sitting on a milk crate. The cop behind me, and then we crossed that major intersection. He just didn't want to do it. I went through. It was like Mr. Magoo. I went right through, and I was lucky as hell. I could be honest with you. It was just a frame. It was just sitting on donut tires. We'd just put baloney tires on it. It's just the engine shown. It was just sitting on a milk crate on top of the engine. We even took out the windshield. It was no trunk deck, no nose, no doors, no seats. No, nothing. You know, I said drive them out once in a while, but that was my closest time to getting pinched. You know, that was the closest time to get pinched on that. You know, but I tell you, even this today, the anti-crime cop would come by and they knew it was us. They should just sit surveillance on the corner. We had a social club on 93rd Street in Avenue Well. Every time I would get into my car, they would pull me over because they knew it was me. And they started harassing me. You know, if they knew it was me, they just couldn't prove it. <laughs> but I got lucky, Gary. Yeah, what can you I say? Did. You did. My luck, ran, my, my luck ran out quick. Believe me, that was one of the <laughs> only times I got lucky. Other than that, I paid for everything I did. I must have drove about maybe 50, 60 shells out. And then the rest of the cars, we chopped. You know, we had a guy for every part, Gary. We had a guy who took the engines. We had a guy who took the scrap metal. We had a guy who took the tires and the wheels. We had a guy who took all the who took all the batteries. We had, you know, we would sell... We would sell the nose, the the doors, the trunk lid. We would sell it as a package. All the other stuff got scrapped. We would cut it. We made money on every aspect of the automobile, every aspect. You're, you're, you're you know, right. nothing went to waste. And we made we made a ton of money in the in, in the in the car industry doing that. And then also buying repairable cars. You know, years ago, the repair repairable business. You could buy a a, a stolen recovery from an insurance company. If the car needed some work to it, needed a nose, a door, whatever, you get the car for like 3500 back then. Well, the book value on the car, say, was 17000 Gary. I would go out that night, rob the same exact car in color, park them next to each other. i used to have these two kids in my neighborhood who used to build the cars for me, give them a $1,000 to build it. They'd put the cars together, and then I'd go and sell that car for book value. Years ago, they didn't have rebuildable on the license. Like today, if you did that in a salvage yard, you have to declare that it was a salvage title. Years ago, you didn't have to do that. So when the customer bought the car, they, unbeknownst to them that the car was put together with stolen parts, nobody knew. I was making a fortune with it. This is funny. One day, I, I buy this car. It was a 1984 Seville. This is how far back I'm going. It was a 1984 Seville. So I buy the car. I put the car together. I put the car together, and I sell it to a, a friend of mine, a crew member of mine. I sell it to him. He's going to give it to his sister. His sister's got the car a month. And he does an insurance job on the car. When he does the insurance job on the car, when I left Gary, I had this organization come to my house that I never knew existed. My doorbell rings one day, and the guy on the other end of the door said, "He looks just like a detective, right?" So I said, "What can I do for you, bud?" He tells me, "He said, listen, he goes, I'm from the National Auto Theft Bureau."
0: Yeah, I know. I never heard of the
1: National (laughs) Auto Theft Bureau in my life. I know them. Uh, Yeah. So, So I says, "So I says, well, what what can I do for you?" He goes, well, um, I understand that you're in the rebuildable business. I said, I wouldn't say I'm in the business, sir. I said, it's more or less a hobby. I said, I buy a car here and there. I said, when I can find one that doesn't need much work, I put it together and I try to make a few bucks. He goes, well, I'm looking at this car. And he takes a file out of his jacket and he puts the file on my, on my kitchen table and he opens it up. He goes, do you know anything about this car? I said, yeah. I said, you know it. I said, you won't be here if you didn't know that I bought this car. I bought it. He goes, well, these are the pictures of your car when you bought it. So he had the pictures and everything. Oh. I said, all right. So what, do you, what are you telling me? He goes, well, this car needed a nose, it needed four doors, it needed a trunk deck, it needed an interior. He goes, do you have a receipt for any of these things that you did? I said, you know what? I might have one or two receipts upstairs. And the funny thing is, Gary, years ago, Cadillac had an addition called the Gold Key Package. And the Gold Key Package was gold emblems, Gold keys, gold door knobs, door, and that's what I had on the vehicle. I think I was missing like an emblem or two, and I had to buy cigarette lighters for the back for the back seats. There was cigarette lighters in the doors. I had the receipts to those, so I give him the receipts. I said, "Listen, this is all I got." because goes, "This is all you got? You build a whole car, and all you got is receipts for <laughs> cigarette lighters?" I said, "Well, I didn't think I was going to need the receipts." He goes, well, I got news for you, buddy. If you're going to keep on repairing cars, he goes, I'm going to be watching you. You're going to need every receipt. <laughs> so from that moment on, he put me out of business, this guy. So whenever I bought a car or stolen recovery, I used to have to put it in a friend of mine's name. This way, he would never come back to me because this guy was on my case from that moment on. I couldn't do it no more the way that I used to. Yeah, well, interesting. So uh, now, instead, uh, I just started. Yeah, in you well you can, fa- you, you can fabricate, fabricate a receipt. A receipt <laughs> but if you get caught fabricating a receipt <laughs> or if you get caught... They have what they call 907A Police Inspection. That's in order for you to get your title for the car, being it was uh, a stolen recovery. So you had to go to the police inspection after you put the car together. So I had a few friends of mine who left the police inspection in handcuffs because they left the paperwork from the car that they stole inside underneath the seat. <laughs> because when the manufacturer puts the interiors in, they put, like, papers in the headliner, papers in the seats, papers behind the door panels. So you have to make sure when you're putting these parts on the new car, you have to make sure that these papers don't stay in those parts because then you're going to get caught when you go to the police inspection. You couldn't fabricate a receipt unless you knew the guy because you could never chance somebody giving you up on a bad receipt when they do the investigation, and then you're pinched, and you're done. Yeah, I was about high school. I was high school. I might have been about the ninth grade. I was just because ninth grade was pretty much like I, I lingered in school, Gary, but I never went. I think I might have went one day out the whole school year. I was never in school. I was in the street trying to make money. That's what I was doing back then. And uh, what happened was I had a lot of friends of mine from the neighborhood who were already part of Gambino crime family as far as, you know, low-level dealing. Just going, doing their thing and turning in and going to the guy in our neighborhood. His name was Nicholas Carrazo. He was a high ranking member of the Gambino Crime Family back then. Also, where I lived was a pivotal situation for me because I lived three or four doors away from Nikki's brother Jojo, who was also a Gambino crime family member, and I was very good friends with Jojo's two children. One became a lawyer, his name is Joseph, and the other one was Rocco. They were they were my neighbours. Everybody knew me from the neighborhood and knew I was already committing crimes and doing things at night. I would go out at night. My stepfather had a, a panel van and I would go out at night and I would steal you know, back then I would steal uh bumpers off cars, I was stealing batteries out of cars, I was stealing uh Mercedes-Benz tires and stuff like that. And I had a guy to sell had a guy at the junkyard to sell the bumpers to the Cadillacs, I had another guy who I would sell the other parts to. Back then, there was a lot of credit card fraud. There was a lot of credit card stuff going around. I had a guy I could bring a credit card to. He would give me cash, the full amount of what the credit card could hold. I would give, I was split it with him. I'd keep the money. He'd keep the other half. So I was mo- I was making moves. And as I was making these moves, a friend of mine comes to me one day. and tells me, he said, listen, he goes, uh, we're getting ready to go up to East New York to Nikki's Club, he says, and, uh as we spoke to him, he, he wants you to come up there with us. He wants to speak to you about something. So, you know, at the time, I didn't know if I did something wrong or what it was, but I had to go. So I go. I go to the club in East New York, and I know he's my friend Joseph, my friend JoJo's uncle. So I go there, and I say, hello, and I, you know, how you doing? I said, my name's Andrew. I says, you know, he goes, listen, kid, he goes, all your friends are here. All your friends come to see me twice a week. He says, I hear good things about you. He goes, I know what you're doing out there. He goes, and I'm going to tell you. He goes, from here on in, I want you to know you can come here for whatever it is that you're doing. He goes, and if anybody bothers you on what you're doing, you come then to see me. He goes, from here on in, he goes, I want you to think of this as school. He goes, this is just like school. He goes, and in school, you're never absent. He said, because somebody here needs you when we have these meetings, and you're not here, you're not being a good friend. He says, and you can learn a lot of valuable things here. He goes, so you understand? He says, you're welcome here. You come all the time. And from that day on, I was a member of the uh, Nicholas Carazo crew inside Gambino Crime Family. I started committing more crimes, and as I started to age, my crimes became more intense. And, you know, we were taking more chances and doing more things. We went to, we started shaking down major drug dealers. And stuff of that nature and collected money from, you know, drug rings. And what we would do is we would take one drug dealer and we would tax him, say, a thousand a week. We would take another drug dealer that we would tax in five hundred a week because his business wasn't as big. And we would put them together with this drug dealer and make them network. So now we could make this guy, this guy start making as much as this guy. So this way we could tax him a thousand. And then whenever we needed to make a move, we tell this guy to give us 30 pounds of marijuana that we're going to go sell privately. Tell this guy to give us two, two keys of cocaine to go and do this. That's how we made our money. And Nikki was smart because we were young at the time. Nicky wouldn't take the money on a daily basis. He would take the money as a gift setting. we bring the money for Christmas, drop of an envelope or what we did for most of the year. So those envelopes would be fat. Other times we would give the money to Nikki's, Nikki's son-in-law, or somebody like that close to him where it didn't go directly to him, but we knew that that money was getting turned into him because he knew every one of our activities. So between the chop shops, the shaking down of the drug dealers, burglaries, ups, whatever it is that we were doing, peace would always get kicked up. And then they told us the proper etiquette about kicking up a certain fee or what it's going to be that goes to your boss. That's At the time, I that, believe, that, you, that you did a, a score. If that, you give it... it that
0: was yeah. a That was a question I've Go always ahead, had. Yeah. Oh, I've always had this question about that. Kicking up to the boss, I, I know what happens, and you know all the major cities where there's a, a, a family. It goes a,
1: by rank, Gary. It goes by rank. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. But now, how how do you decide how much? Is there you, you indicated there was a protocol?
1: Well, what happens is this. I could be honest with you. I could be honest with you. I mean, a guy I know who was a street guy, whoever gave an accurate an accurate count, you wouldn't be a real street guy if you gave an accurate count. Yeah. If you were a guy who gave the boss every got, every dollar that you made, you're a bumbling idiot because you're out there risking your neck every day. So what happens is we would just, being we were together, we would never want the other crew member to think that we're trying to be greedy. So we would all come to a vote on what we're going to give. And this way, everybody is culpable. And this I way, see. we all know, OK, if we get in trouble for not giving enough, then we'll just all go to the carpet together. And then we can rectify it. You didn't want to like a greedy guy you want to be a team player and of course you're looking to impress this guy and show this guy that you know how the system works but I tell you I said this a thousand times from the morning I opened my eyes to the to the time that I closed them at night all we did about all we thought about was stealing how to make a move how to maneuver how to swindle how to do whatever it took to make a dollar and the only thing that we had in common was that we are all criminals we're all thieves, and we're all trying to keep ourselves safe from law enforcement, people like yourself, Gary. So that's why we stuck together, because in numbers, you have you know, two heads are better than one mentality, that as you think things through, you could be smarter criminals and do what you need to do to keep out of harm's way from the police and from the FBI and any sort of open investigations. And we sit under the radar for a long time because... Nicky himself was a very low-key guy, you know. Listen, it is what it is, you know. Things played out in my life to bring me to where I am now. And believe me, I'm happy with my life. But if I stood in that life, I wouldn't want to be with anybody else. That guy was meant for that life. That guy came out of the womb, a gangster. I can tell you that straight up. At the end of the day, in the life, I nothing respect for the guy. But at the end of the day, for me, I was expendable to him because... I was one of many moving parts that he controlled. That's the nature of the game. There were t- Here, yeah, i give you for instance. When lions eat, the most powerful eats first, right? The most powerful eats first, so you make sure you kick up first and then whatever. You have to do it in such a way where, like I said, we would never doing things on our own like that. Only until I got much older and deep into the game that I started doing things on my own. Later on in my criminal whole career, whatever you want to call it, I was involved in bank robbery activity, and I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it straight to you. I wasn't going to put my balls on the line and give this guy every dollar that I made, knowing that I was out there putting my life on the line. This guy was home with his family. I'm going to give him a, a decent amount of cut, but I'm not going to be nobody's fool. or I'm out there stealing, and I'm still hungry because of my so-called etiquette on on kicking up the ladder. If you get caught, you get clipped. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. They want to clip you over it. And Nikki was under the guys that I was holding back money. So the guys that I was dealing with, we had a pretty eclectic crew of guys that we were doing these robberies with. And we had you guys from the Genovese crew, me from the Gambino crew. We had another guy from the Banano crew. So we had a real eclectic crew of guys, but the nucleus of it was Genovese guys. When, Nikki was pretty much how I knew I was on the hit parade was Nikki was investigating the money I was making. And he was sending his son in law out to the bosses in the Genovese crew to try to find out how much I was making on specific scores. But I tell you one thing about the Genovese guys, those guys never gave me up. Those guys stood their ground and told Nikki they didn't know what he was talking about. They told Nikki, listen, we don't know what kind of scores you're talking about. All we know is that the kid, all we know is that the kid solid, and we wish we could have them over here. If you want to release them, release them. We'll take them. And I think that infuriated Nick even more that I was building these alliances. And now I'm really seeing the threat because now I'm making money. He doesn't know what I'm making. I'm doing all of these things. And then at the time, I had some other information on him about a double homicide that my crew was involved in. So I knew that I was on a, you know, I was on a short list. The short list to get clipped. I asked him to release me a few times. And what his answer to me was, and you'll laugh your read off, his answer to me was this. He said, listen, I'm going to tell you like it is. He says, if I liked you, I would entertain it for a second. But I don't. He said, so understand this. You were born here. You will die here. What's his exact words? So when he told me that, I knew that I was going to have a hard way to go because now he's mad at the fact that I tried to get released. And if you're trying to get released from him, you know this. So what happened was he wanted me to implement a few guys from my crew to come and do these bank, you know, these, you know, the bank activity with me. And I told him straight out, right? I said, really? He says, you want me to bring somebody around here from here to go and do these things with guys that allowed me to come with them to do these things? I said, first of all, let me... Give you some ABC news. I says I went to your son-in-law about four months ago. I told him that I had a score on a night deposit box on on a bank in Brooklyn. I says and I told him, come with me. I'll earn money for him. I'll make him drive or do something. I says and know what he said to me. He told me that I only desperados rob banks. I says I thought we were fucking men here. <laughs> I says he told me I was a desperado for robbing a bank. I says. And I looked at him and I was like, well, we can't all get it easy. We can't all get gifts from our father-in-laws who are going to feed us the rest of our lives. we gotta make a, we got to make a living on our own. That's when I never looked at his son-in-law ever the same again. And his son-in-law and me were childhood friends. And that's when I knew that this kid had a different mentality. You know, he's marrying the boss's daughter. He's going to get it easy the rest of his life, whether he admits it or not. And God bless him. God bless him, he ain't got to do the things that I got to do. But at the end of the day, at least keep it real. I tried to put you onto a score. You call me a desperado. Now, this guy's yelling at me for not bringing nobody around. Step forward and tell him I tried to take you. Don't leave me out to dry. We're kids together in the street, making money our whole lives. Step up and be a man and say, hey, Nick, you offered to take me. But he never said a word. You know, so there's a lot of variables and a lot of moving parts, guys. It really is. Let, Let me tell you something. I'll tell you exactly what it was. We were... We were in a diner on, um, we were in a diner in Canarsie. We were on, uh, we used to go to this diner right off the highway, Canarsie, right? And what happened was we would go and meet Nikki and have the meetings at the diner, just meet, meet each other all times of the night or whatever. So we're in the diner, we're waiting for Nikki to show up and another friend of ours comes in and he tells me and another two of my friends, he goes, you guys are still in the car business? And she said, yeah, we're still in the car business. He says, well, there's a Mercedes outside running. There's some guy on the telephone. He's not paying attention. He goes, this car looks brand new. So we looked at each other. It was an opportunity. We walked outside. My friend Mike walked down the stairs first. My friend Mike walks over to the driver's side of the car. I walk in front of the gentleman on the phone in between him and the passenger seat of the car. I'm blocking him. He sees Mike jump into the car. He makes a move to try to run for the car. I give him like sort of like a hip check to get him out of the way. He falls down on one knee and grabs the door handle. Mike is already driving away. I run around the corner. I get the chase car. I follow Mike to my house. We get to the house. We pull in. We don't think anything. We do the normal, look through the car. We keep the car on the side of the house. We're going to wait till later. We're probably going to chop it the next morning. We look in real quick. We don't see anything. There's a bag in the back. We're going to wait till later. We go upstairs. No sooner than we go upstairs, we're in my house. My phone rings about five minutes later. Phone rings. Nikki on the phone. Nicky never calls me. Anything, anytime we ain't going to speak to each other, it's going to be in person. He calls me. He said, listen, kid. He goes, we got a problem. He goes, uh, you were just at the diner. I said, yeah. He goes, you got that thing from the diner. I said, yeah. He goes, listen, I can't get into it, but it's got to go back. And I'm on the phone, and my friends are listening in on it, and we're all looking at each other like dumbfounded. He goes, I can't explain it to you now, but it goes back. So he's the boss. We're looking at each other. Now we're mad. We hang up the phone. We're sitting there. We're looking at each other like, what, what should we do? It's only a car, no big deal. We can get another Mercedes anytime. Phone rings two minutes later again. He says, uh, says, listen, Andrew. He goes, inside that car, in the trunk, is a bag. Inside that bag, do not look in that bag, okay? Don't look in that bag. You can't tell teenage (laughs) kids to look in a bag. We go downstairs. We go to the car, open it up. I look. I take the bag. I bring it upstairs. We go and we open up the glove box, too. We open up the glove box and there's a wallet inside. We take them both upstairs. We're sitting and we're looking through the wallet. Nothing's phasing us. The license plate said bought one. Is a license plate of the car. (laughs) So we're looking. We open up the bag. and Inside the bag, as soon as we open it, there's a 38 on top. A Hamillers 38. We take the Hamlet's thirty eight, put it down. We look in this stuff with envelopes. Open up the first envelope, twenty five hundred. Mm-hmm. Second envelope, seven fifty. Third envelope, five thousand. Fourth envelope, and the list goes on and on and on. After all is said and done, there's eighty seven thousand in the bag.
0: Oh my god.
1: <laughs> on the bottom of the bag, on the bottom of the bag, there's a ledger book. Phone rings again. It, I'm warning you. Whatever you do, don't open up that book. <laughs> hear me? There's a book in So now we're reading this book and we're looking at each other. We don't know what to do, right? My friend's going through the wallet. We're looking in the wallet and there's a picture of this young guy. these two nice looking women and an old man. And we're looking. And my friend goes, This can't be. I said, What are you talking about? He goes, This can't be. He shows me the picture. Truth be told, it's Paul Castellano sitting in the picture. So I looked at him. I says, can't be. This is like the. This is like winning the lottery and finding out that the lottery was not the lottery. Really. You just won a, a, a first-class ticket to the resurrection. You were dead.
0: This is like a, and, a movie. Uh, this is like robbing the Mob movie
1: here. Uh, it was Paul's nephew. He was in charge of making the rounds and picking up stuff. And of course, that money was supposed to go directly to Paul. Actually, the money was for one of Paul's businesses. Take a long story short. He tells us, listen, sit tight We'll get back in touch with you in a few minutes. We'll let you know what what to do, but don't worry about it. We're gonna take care of it. Kid, I apologize. I apologize to all you guys, he says, because I would never ever tell you to give anything you've ever stole back. He said, This is the only person in the world that we'll ever have to give anything back to. I promise you that. He said, If the president of the United States gets robbed by you guys, you don't have to give nothing back. He said, But this guy goes back. <laughs> We all laughed, you know, whatever, you know, it was a joke and we're looking at each other and still that larceny in your heart, we're sitting there and we're still trying to figure out how to keep this money. We're young kids, we're in the street all our lives and, you know, we're trying to keep We're thinking about what we could do, what we could do. Finally, my mother, who always minds her business, comes downstairs and she hears us in the kitchen and my mother says, never get involved in your affairs. He goes, but I hear you talking here about the stupidest goddamn <laughs> things that you guys could ever think about doing. He says, give this money back. This man is going to peel your skin back for this money. And we're looking at each other, and finally, like, the first sane voice in the room appeared when my mother showed. You know? <laughs> we arranged a meeting. The next day, we bring the money back. So now we're thinking about, okay, when we get to this meeting, are they going to kill us now? You know. Yes. So now we're digging about all these things are going through your head. So I go to the meeting and I ain't going to lie. I'm loaded for bear. My friend's loaded for bear. And we said to each other, if we <laughs> see anything funny, we're just going to shoot our way yeah, out. We're and then gonna we're a we go there and you know, it's how we're going out swinging. We're going out shooting, whatever it's going to be. So we come, we set up a meet. The first car pulls up. It's this guy bought. He gets out of the car. Oh, whatever goes to speak to Nikki. They go speak to him, whatever they do. They come in. We give them the bag, and we told him, "Listen, there's only ten dollars missing, because you had no gas. We took ten dollars <laughs> out of the money to get gas for your car." Oh, you're bold! You're but bold. But the car was out of gas, <laughs> and we took all the bullets out. Of, we took all the bullets out of his thirty-eight. <laughs> he kept the bullets, and we gave him the gun back and everything. And he looked at us and he said, "No," just nodded his head, "Thank you." And he got back in the car, left. We didn't hear a thing about it. So about twenty-four, I think twenty-four hours passes. The next day or something. I'm in my house, and the doorbell rings, and when the doorbell rings, I answer it. And there's some guy on the other end of the door, and he says, uh, You Andrew? I said, Yeah, I'm Andrew. He goes, I got something for you. And I'm between the screen door. I got a gun in my hand. And he goes, I got something for you. And I'm thinking, Yeah, I got something for you, too. Not knowing, I see this van outside. He goes back downstairs, opens up the door, and he gave us all a basket of fruit for being honorable. <laughs> so I didn't know it. So then I asked my friend, You got a basket of fruit? And we were all mad because we thought we were going to get like a finder's fee or something or some really? sort of payday for <laughs> at least returning the money All we got is fruit and I remember telling Nikki we went up to club that week and I remember telling Nikki how are we supposed to pay off our bills with fruit you can't pay the bills with fruit and Nikki said listen he said I got a message for you that guy said you guys got a feather in your cap and you's got a favor coming well i would i would assume that the way that i was back then buck wild the way we were running in the street i must have cashed in that favor about 20 times in the first three months within about, within that year, Paul Paul was murdered. And then I remember when Paul was murdered, we were sitting in a room one day, we were saying... If we knew him, this guy was getting married, <laughs> really, you we could have stood away for a year. You could have held but out then, for a year. But then my friend turns around and goes, he goes, yeah, but then John Gotti would have wanted the money. You would <laughs> have to pay it one way or another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can't win. That's the type of life it is, you know. Really? One head gets cut off, the other one pops up and wants the same kind of money. So it doesn't, really? it doesn't end. Well, Andrew, this has
0: been great. So, and, uh, all right, sir. We'll let you get on about your business. And I appreciate it. If there's ever anything I can do for you, don't hesitate to uh, get hold of me. And you've... Uh,
1: I you will, sir. Hey, listen, send me a copy of this. I would love to hear it. I, I
0: will. I'll, I, what I'll do is uh, I'll, uh, when I pu- I'll put it up, and then I'll uh, uh, send you a link, and you can download it. Then you can have your own copy of it. How about that?
1: All my best to you and your family, guys. Right. Uh, happy holiday. Be safe. Okay, you Enjoy too. Enjoy your happy good new year with all the health in the world.
0: Okay, you too. Well, hey, guys, that was that was a heck of a story, are <laughs> two or three stories. This he's a fun guy. He was he was most fun interview I ever had. I met him several years ago at a at the very first MobCon in Las Vegas. Uh, my good friend Denny Griffin had was the guy that that helped him write his book. So you know I mean, we became friends then, and then we did the interview. And I did this interview a long time ago, and I put it down on my old podcast way back when. And, and it's long gone now. They take them down after a period of time. You can only see, keep so many up. So I thought I'd redo this one. And and I think it's worth it. It was, it was a really good story. It's a really good insight into the life of a mafia associate in the uh, Gambino crime family. So thanks a lot, guys. And don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles. So watch out for your motorcycles when you're out there. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, why well, go to the P, go to the VA website tumbled over my words there, didn't I? Go to the VA website and uh, get that hotline. They got some help there. So thanks a lot, guys.